Welcome to Belonging and Becoming, a podcast featuring Asbury University President, Dr. Kevin Brown. He'll help us consider life, learning, and virtue in today's complex world. Our hope is that this conversation will enrich you in your life journey. On today's episode, we're continuing our conversation with Asbury's president, Dr. Kevin Brown. Last time, we heard about his early years in Louisville, how he met his wife, Maria, and the unique spiritual impact his parents and parents-in-law had on him. Today, you'll discover what he's learned from his own spiritual pilgrimage that impacts his appreciation of Asbury's unique environment. And on a lighter note, we'll hear what superpower Dr. Brown might pick, if he could, as well as how some who knew him two decades ago might react to his current position. Some of my college professors would have been hospitalized from shock if they would have known that I was a professor, number one, and then number two, a professor at a faith-based school, and certainly now that uh, I'm an administrator. I'm Doug Walker, media communication professor at Asbury, and your host for today's episode of Belonging and Becoming. We continue now with part two of our interview with Dr. Kevin Brown. I jotted this down because I wouldn't have remembered it easily, but your thesis at St. Andrews was entitled Contemporary Theological Critiques of Capitalism and the Implications for the Christian Practice of Giving. I didn't read your thesis, but I I have read, and I'm sure you've seen some of these too, a study that said Christians in the current era give about 2.5% of their income. Uh, During the Great Depression, they actually gave more than that, about Mm -hmm. 3.3%. And in another survey, I read that one in five Americans say that they regularly tithe. Not having read your thesis, I was still curious, are there lessons from your thesis and what you looked at in terms of capitalism and looking at the picture there that might challenge us as individuals to reconsider our view of giving? Yes. And this, this thesis project was my attempt to take seriously the claims of theology and uh, what that means for our lives, and to take seriously the claims of the social sciences like economics. And so as I mentioned much earlier, I'm working in banking, I'm working in business, there are activities that constitute commercial practice, um, but what does it mean to think theologically about those? And so this was uh, a wonderful space for me to, to really see what does theology have to say about this? And in fact, it has a lot to say. There's a, a journal called Faith and Economics. They basically did a, a series years ago where it was what theologians wish economists knew about theology and what economists wish theologians knew about economics. And it was wonderful. It was a wonderful dialogue. And so there really are some, some important places of integrating and speaking to and putting these two disciplines in conversation. I think what's fascinating to me is that the social science fields often recruit from philosophy or theology. In other words, they they unavoidably flirt with metaphysical questions. So, for example, one of my favorite books ever is called How Much is Enough? Uh, How much money is enough? How many pairs of clothes and and shoes are enough? Uh, How much food is enough? Uh, Is it just enough to satiate ourselves? Uh, How big of a house? Uh, Actually, it seems like a simple question, 
But this is a very deep theological, philosophical question. Looking at the field of economics alone will not settle it. To your point about uh, giving and tithe, giving has often been described as a practice that's antithetical to exchange economies. So capitalism, free enterprise is very much uh, an exchange economy. And so uh, you and I exchange something, uh, or, or more often uh, we exchange money for some product or service or experience, and new value is created in that exchange. And that's a good thing. Uh, but when I give, I do not necessarily expect something in return. And moreover, that giving is often motivated uh, by, by some moral rationale or moral reasoning. So the, the very idea of giving kind of stands in contrast to some dimensions of an exchange economy. Uh, and that's what I wanted to explore in this particular dissertation, hmm. or thesis, I should say. And then you went on to your dissertation. Are, uh, I couldn't tell from the titles. Uh, are the two connected? In other words, were you? Did you originally know that the one would lead into the other, or you know how are they related? I did not okay. know that. Um, and yeah, both titles titles are wonderfully erudite. Uh, I, I'm sure I was just trying to sound academic. They are related in this way. We're looking at some major dimension of our life, and we're trying to place a normative lens on it. And when I say normative, that just means what we ought to do. So ought or should. So my PhD work had to do with residential integration. And the United States for an advanced democracy is one of the most segregated countries in the world uh, residentially. So there's an economic way of thinking about this, but there's also an ethical way of thinking about this. Is this good? I remember uh, I, I saved an article in Pennsylvania a few years ago. A school said they found that when uh, students were clustered by gender and race uh, and then uh, put into enclaves, so black females, white females, black males, white males, they actually did better on educational outcomes. But then that begs the question, is that an arrangement we should seek? Would I be willing to send my son or daughter to a school that prized that. And so those are philosophical questions. It's not simply about how do we maximize an economic arrangement about optimality, uh, but it's also about what is good and what is right and what is true. And how, how do we integrate that into our considerations about what is right for society? Around this time, uh, I was reading uh, some some material by Stanley Hauervoss. At that time, he was a theologian at Duke University. And Time Magazine, I don't know if they still do this, but they would do these superlatives each year. And so in 2001, Stanley Hauervoss was named the best theologian in the United States. His response to that was brilliant. He said, best is not a theological category. Faithful is. And that simple response really captured what I was trying to do both in my master's thesis as well as my PhD dissertation. Best is an economic expression. It is about maximization. It's about what is optimal. Faithful is different. Now, sometimes doing what is faithful is doing what is best. Uh, but you and I know that sometimes faithfulness is the opposite. It's about what's inconvenient. It's non-maximizing. It's suboptimal. 
And so Hauerbach is saying our lives should not be constituted uh, by this kind of uh, rational choice, homo economicus self going around maximizing every situation, but rather what is faithful, what glorifies God, what behavior signals that I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and not simply uh, a citizen uh, with an identity in a particular place and time here on earth. And so those were the the meta themes I was flirting with in both of those projects, and they still grab my attention today. You finished that degree up in what year? I defended in, I believe, December of 2011. And so... You had already made the transition, though, from banking into teaching during that period while you were working on your degrees. Is that right? Correct. I started teaching at Anderson University in Indiana in fall of 2009. So our family moved down there, and that was was wonderful to, to enter into the world of higher education. Switching gears just a little bit, because I didn't know where to fit this in, but I think it's helpful for listeners to be able to hear some of this, too, as we kind of put this framework into the one that you've shared already. Can you tell us the story of your Christian pilgrimage and how that uh, weaved its way through your education and the choices you've made along the way as well? Yes, absolutely. As I mentioned, I grew up in the church. I was baptized at Southeast Christian um, at an early age. I think I was in second grade and um, really had a great experience. Uh, Christian Academy was a a very good institution that um, really acclimated me to the Bible, to the world of faith, to this idea that we inhabit two worlds, this kind of eternal world, uh, this created order that we're in as well as this physical, natural world, and always had a strong belief in God. Um, I would say around the time I got to high school, um, I would certainly call myself a Christian. I would pray before meals, but it would not have been evident uh, to others in my words and actions and thereafter that I was living uh, a Christian life or that I was a follower of Jesus Christ. And so... I, would, I don't know if I would say I abandoned my faith, but I certainly abandoned the practices associated uh, with being a Christian and maybe held something like Bonhoeffer's cheap grace as in the back of my head as, as a way to justify that. Went to college, and again, college is so fascinating because it's a time where you're, you're trying to figure out who, who am I and who am I going to be? And so I don't think I really knew how to answer that question. And I, I went several years just coasting in this, this kind of uh, ephemeral, identity-less, following my preferences, finding myself highly and deeply dissatisfied. In my testimony, I, I share a story where uh, I was listening to a song once uh, by a popular alternative band, and the song was called Good Intentions. And the opening line was, it's hard to rely on my good intentions when my head's full of things I can't mention. It seems I usually get things right, but I can't understand what I did last night. And I just remember pausing and thinking, wow, that is me. I'm a good guy. I have good intentions. Uh, I want to be a good person, but I fail continuously. Um, T.S. Eliot talks about this, this, this idea that 
uh, between the motion and the act falls the shadow, that there is this gap between uh, intention and performance, between what we want to do uh, and what we actually do. I think Paul had a thing or two to say about that in Romans. <laughs> and so this really constituted my life. But around this time, towards the, the end of college, the latter part of college, uh, I was working at a church, and uh, I was the youth minister, and it was really a way to make money, not any kind of spiritual edification. In fact, my roommate called it Youth Kid, because only one person showed up most of the time. Uh, so I wasn't a dynamic youth pastor. But I think more than, than that, the Lord had me there because there was a, a wonderful pastor there named Carol Fritz, and she just poured into my life. She would ask me questions about myself and my giftings and what was I doing to glorify God. Uh, Run-of-the-mill questions for a Christian institution, but at that time, that was very revelatory for me. I didn't know how to answer her. There was another guy that just pulled me into a Bible study. Someone was reading scripture with me at, at Big Boy at breakfast every Thursday morning. I mentioned my, Maria's parents sending me um, this book and calling me a thinker. So people were building up this identity in Kevin Brown. And there was a summer where I, I was doing an internship and all of my friends left. It was a very bizarre summer. And I tell people the highlight of that summer was actually cat sitting for a friend. And that gives you an idea of how lonely I was. I was actually excited to come back and spend time with a cat uh, that <laughs> wasn't even mine. And I, where I worked was an hour away, so I had two hours in the car every day. But it was a summer of being totally alone. And the Lord spoke to me. And I think when I look back on that now, I'm convinced that that time, that aloneness was necessary for me to really ask myself some hard questions. At the end of that summer, I was invited to a family camp. And that Sunday, uh, the sermon was given, and it was, as you've maybe heard the description before, a sermon like no other. You think no one else is in the room, and this is directed totally at me. And an invitation was provided at the end of that sermon. And I just remember I went forward. I wasn't even sure what I was praying or speaking to or talking about, uh, but just said, Lord, you have me. Uh, you have me. And I was never the same. And so all of these things were swirling and happening at that time. And there's different theological vocabulary we can put to those experiences. Uh, but suffice to say, uh, the Lord just did a work in me that I was different. And again, this is why the college student in that age is so important to me, because I saw what a, a critical moment of, of time in my life that was, and that people were willing to invest in me. And um, to be at a school like Asbury, uh, where not only do those investments occur, but they're encouraged and they're literally woven into the fabric of who we are as an institution is extraordinary. Uh, so that is why I love the college space and especially the Christian college space is because of what Christians did for me during that time in my life. What made the transition or what made the move from Anderson then to Asbury? When, and when did that occur? So... My father-in-law, as I mentioned, uh, was the president at World Gospel Mission, and he mentioned to me a board member who had been a banker who had transitioned into Christian higher education. And I said, oh my goodness, that's what I want to do. Can you connect me with this person? And he did, and her name was Dr. Sandra Gray. 
And so I reached out to her, I think in 2005, and we had some back and forth. And between the time I first reached out to her and the time I actually sat down to meet her, she had been promoted to president. And so that was a, a blessed meeting, and she basically laid out, uh, here's what you're going to have to do if you want to make this transition and make it viable. She said, you got to teach adjunct somewhere and get some experience in these degrees, and you'll want to talk to people and hear about their own experience. Uh, she connected me with Dr. Steve Clements, and in 2009, uh, Steve and I, I, I met him in Wilmore um, a weekend I was visiting my parents, and uh, we stood in front of the semicircle drinking coffee, and I think we had a three-hour conversation about anything and everything. And um, I was just—I just love that. Now, the thing I will never forget of that day, right before I left, Dr. Clements said, "If you enjoy the conversations you and I just had, you will love teaching here." That really, really sunk in. So Steve and I stayed in touch. Uh, every summer thereafter, and in 2012, he said, we have an opening, and I, I applied and was ready to come down and uh, be back in Kentucky again. So you, you taught here for how many years then before you moved into the president's chair? Yes, so I started in fall of 2013, so six years as a faculty member, and then one year now as uh, president of the institution. One of the fun questions that somebody submitted to me to ask you was, going through college, going through school, did you ever dream of being a college president? Oh, heavens no. And uh, I, I've said before that some of my college professors would have been hospitalized from shock if they would have known that I was a professor, number one, and then number two, a professor at a faith-based school. And certainly now that uh, I'm an administrator at a faith-based school, either you could say the, the Lord has mysterious ways or the Lord has good humor or both. Uh, but I don't think the people in my life imagine that, and I certainly didn't conceive of that myself. Moving into the president's chair was something that the Lord had to convince you of as well? There was a lot of prayer associated with it. My prayer was and with the help of my, my wife, a couple of things. When I spoke to the interview committee and spoke to the board, that they would see nothing more or nothing less than who I was, uh, that I wouldn't be above or below the mean, so to speak, um, but I would be able to provide an authentic picture of myself. And second, that doors would, would close where they needed to close. This is not something that I wanted to step into if I didn't feel like it was a part of a larger plan. Because, as you know, Asbury and Wilmore is, is a community. And my closest friends and people I so deeply respect, uh, I work with. And so to take on the role of an administrator would reconstitute those relationships, but also is very heavy thought that decisions that I make will literally influence and affect the lives of people that I care deeply about. Uh, so that was a, a heavy, a heavy thought. So uh, it was not simply a cost benefit decision. It was very much a soul seeking, uh, Lord, what would you have kind of moment. So you mentioned your family and we haven't actually uh... I got to this part yet. Obviously, we talked about Maria, but you have three children. Tell us a little about them. Yes, Campbell, Ada, and Oliver. And Campbell is starting high school now. Uh, Ada, my daughter, 
is three years younger than him, and Oliver is three years younger than her. Uh, Oliver is Congolese, and so we had the opportunity to bring him home in early 2012. Uh, he's been a tremendous gift to our family and has been so embraced uh, within the Wilmore community, as have our other kids. Um, all three of them are very different. They're also alike in some ways, uh, but they're, they're blessed, blessed children. One quick story to highlight their differences. During the COVID-19 quarantine at dinner, I asked each one to rate on a scale of one to 10, how are you doing? And Oliver, who's extremely extroverted, quickly said zero. Uh, you know, this, this really upset look on his face. And my daughter had this pensive look, like really considering the question, and she said, nine. <laughs> because uh, for her, a great day is to go up into a room and shut the door and read all day. Uh, and then Campbell was right in between. He, he likes uh, time by himself, and he also likes to be with others. And so I think he was a five or six. Uh, and that's exactly where I would have expected each of them uh, to be. Uh, but they, they love Kentucky. They love Wilmore. And um, I remember a few years after we moved here, we went out of town. And as we were coming back, I said, do you feel like we're going home? And they said, oh, yeah, this is home. And so that, that was special to me. As we get to wrapping up here, um, again, I got some different questions from people I talked to who said, if you had one question you could ask Dr. Brown, what would it be? And some of them were a little lighter. So it, these ones won't take long, complicated answers, All but right. uh, we can have a little fun with it. So the first one was, if you had one superpower, what would it be? Boy, that's a great question. Um, I have often thought what a great superpower it would be to suspend time. Uh, so if I could suspend time, so those moments where I forget something or I need to look at notes or whatever it might be. Um, now, I don't know if I could save the world with uh, that superpower necessarily, but it would certainly offer me some personal conveniences. <laughs> well, and being university president, I'm sure there are many times where you're <laughs> trying to get ready for a meeting where you would love to suspend time. Amen. Or... Yes, yes. Yeah, that's that's the modern application of that. Like, oh, this will give me a half an hour more to get ready for something. <laughs> Another question for you uh, related to uh, books, because those of us who hear you speak more often know that you quote a lot of great <laughs> books along the way. So I'm curious if you had a one book other than the Bible that's had a great impact on your life, what would you say that is? Oh, boy. Yeah, that's hard to actually narrow it down, I know. Yes, a, a lot of books that um, has certainly impacted me. I mentioned earlier the book by Robert and Edward Skidelsky, How Much is Enough? And that was a book, I, I had to write a book review for a journal for it, um, but it really was opening some doors about how normative ways of thinking about economic activity, thinking about business. And so that occurred at a time in my life where it really expanded my imagination and my philosophical and theological imagination to think about everyday things that we take for granted. Uh, we very much uh, have acclimated ourselves to uh, a business world, and business is good, and uh, I, I appreciate that and I've worked in that. Uh, but there are a lot of questions that it raises that we take for granted. And this book did a great job of drawing that out 
and made me recognize that there's very much a need to provide a theological or philosophical appraisal uh, to all dimensions of our life and especially uh, the business dimension and commercial activity. I'll give you one last chance at the end to add anything you want to, but I wanted to ask you one, one final question, which is when you have spare time, free time, which maybe doesn't feel very often, I can imagine, but when you do have some spare time, what's uh, one or two things that you like doing on your own, mm-hmm. and then one or two things that you like doing with your family? Yes, with my family, during the, the COVID-19 quarantine, we developed a pattern where every Saturday morning we went and got donuts and just drove around central Kentucky. And so it wasn't just a seek and destroy donut run, but we would get some coffee and donuts and just talk and drive and see different places. But uh, it was fascinating because if I just asked the kids to sit in the living room and talk about like, what books are you reading? Or here's a current event and what do you think about that? Uh, They may shut down, but there's something about being in the car together. And so we'd have light talks or we'd have heavy talks. Uh, telling jokes or maybe talking about something philosophically. And I just came to really, really enjoy that time. I would get excited when we woke up on Saturday morning. Um, I I tend to do dates with our kids, and I think it's cute that they still call it that. So even the boys will say, are we doing a date? Like, uh, and that's, that's been really endearing to me. And then my youngest son, Oliver, he will do a Sunday afternoon hike with me. I typically have to get him a Sprite, uh, but I'm happy to make that exchange, uh, a Sprite, and then we'll find somewhere in central Kentucky to hike together, and uh, that's been a blessing. In my spare time, uh, it's it's pretty simple, and you might say boring. I love to read. Uh, I love to drink coffee and just think and uh, ponder on some of the things that I'm reading. And I love watching The Twilight Zone. Uh, Sometimes I do that by myself, other times with my son. And there's actually a great podcast on The Twilight Zone. I'm talking about the black and white ones. That's what I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah, they they are fables and they're moral fables. And there's always a here's the moral to the story dimension to them. And there's something about science fiction that can present questions to us that we may not otherwise raise ourselves. And so I I find it just brilliant how Serling and some of the writers were able to raise these questions that have significant moral implications in such a creative storytelling way. Uh, So I like to geek out on, on shows like that and podcasts like that. Great. Anything else we've missed about you that people might find, uh, you know, that we haven't got to that uh, would give us a better understanding of who you are, what you're passionate about to what matters to you? I think I would say this, um, if, if there is anything good in me, I think of the people I'm, I'm closest with who have just poured into my life. I especially think of my family and my parents. Uh, when I consider morality and when some of the truths of Christianity or Wesleyan holiness theology, when that was presented to me, it, it took, it made sense uh, because it was demonstrated before me. I I like to share this quote um, by Gypsy Smith, the British evangelist, where he says, there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. And most people, he says, will never read the first four. My parents have been the fifth Gospel uh, for so much of my life. They are other-centered, they're service-oriented, they're very humble. 
myself, my sisters, we watch them elevate and prioritize relationships over other things. And uh, even in the midst of inconveniences, they're principled people and they're great thinkers. And so I've, I've had that as a model most of my life. And so when I heard people talk about love, when I heard about um, uh, whether it was Luther or Augustine talking about the heart curved in on itself is sin and this kind of Jesus came so that we could be other-centered, that made sense to me because I saw it so evident in, in my family and in my parents. And I can say the same thing about my in-laws. I can say the same thing about my wife. So I've just been incredibly blessed and fortunate to not only hear the gospel or hear good thinking, hear wisdom, hear virtue, but to see it. And because I've first seen it, when I did hear it, it made sense. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Asbury University President Dr. Kevin Brown. Our hope is that each episode will enrich you in your life journey. In our next episode, we'll hear Dr. Brown's look into the future of Christian higher education. And what does the coronavirus and a changing world mean for Asbury University's future? Also coming up later in episode four, we'll feature an interview with Asbury University graduate Andrew Coleman and the path that took him to a leadership position at GE Aviation, a world leading provider of jet engines. Join us for both conversations coming up on Belonging and Becoming.